If you would please open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. The book of Ephesians chapter 4. Now, as we've studied the book of Ephesians, we've made it through the first three chapters. And if you remember, the book of Ephesians is broken up into two parts. The first three chapters focused on the doctrinal, uh, a doctrinal focus. And the last three chapters is on the practical or the application of the doctrine that he just taught us. And this is the same pattern that Paul uses in his other letters. He always talks about here's the doctrine, here's the truth, here's what you need to know. And then the last part of his letters is now let me teach you how you apply it. This is how you're supposed to behave. This is how what you're supposed to now do. You just don't get knowledge and then not do anything with it. You don't just get a bunch of knowledge and not apply it. It's not something you, you learn and say, oh, that's really wonderful, but then turn around and go do your own thing. And as a child of God, God has a way of teaching us truth, and then says, this is now what you must do as a child of God. You have to do something. It's like a parent. Son, go make your bed. Oh, yes. Oh, I heard you. And then walk away and not make the bed. It doesn't go well in the family when that happens. And it's the same thing in regards to the child, the children of God, in the children, the family of God, is that when God says, here's what I, I want to share with you, now here's what you need to do with that, but we don't do it, there's causes, challenges, as you can imagine. And so as Paul's letters contain this beautiful balance between the doctrine and duty uh, and uh, of, of a Christian, and then in Ephesians is that perfect example. And we found in the first part that position in Christ. Now we're going to talk about the next three chapters about the purpose in Christ or the conduct of the church and how we do that. And we're going to see an emphasis on the walk in unity today. Now we'll see the walk in unity in the last three chapters. Walk in unity. Then we'll see walk in purity. We're going to see the walk in love. We're going to see walk in the spirit. Walking in harmony. Walking in victory. We're going to see all of these played out over the next three chapters. And this is all application. This is how how do I live this Christian life? Well, you're going to get it for the next three chapters. So you do not want to miss the next three chapters, because that's really what's key, right? It's knowing, but then applying, and how do you apply it properly? So today, we're going to see in this first 16 verses of chapter 4, we're going to walk and understand how we're to behave, or walk, behave in unity, or walk in unity as a church. The first part of the, of, uh, the 16 verses talks about the unity within the church, but he gets in verse 7, he's going to be a little more specific about you, how you are to walk in unity within the body of Christ, and how you are to apply it. So it's speaking to you and, and to me as we look at these, these 16 verses. Now we start here, and I'm going to read through these 16 verses because I think it's just really important to do that. Even with time-wise, I think it's just important for you to understand the full uh, part of the first part here that we're looking at. This is in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all loneliness and gentleness, with long-suffering and bearing with one another in love, enduring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that, that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, but by the, and by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. From whom the whole body joined and knitted together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now you can see why the book of Ephesians is one of my favorite books. Because this 16 verse is just jam-packed with things that you and I need to know as a church body, but also individually in part of that, and how we are to continue to keep this unity that God has brought us together in unity, and how to keep that, how to, to live in, in day by day in this unity as a church. But you'll notice here in the very beginning here, he uses some key words here, the word therefore. So what is therefore based upon is his exhortation to the duty of the doctrines taught in the first three chapters. So he says, I've taught you this doctrine, therefore, this is what you now need to do. And it's not one of those, I'll think about it, I'll, I'll you know, debate it in my head and, and may pick and choose some of these things. No, no. He, in the, the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul says, here's the truth. Here's what you need to know. You now must do the following. If not, there's going to be consequences, right? That's what happens when you receive truth. You know what you need to do, but if you don't do it, there's consequences and, and disruption. It never harms just you. It harms everyone around you. So he says here, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Remember, he's, he's in the Roman prison at this point in time. He's not a prisoner of Rome. He's not a prisoner of the people. He's the prisoner of the Lord. He's been captivated by his Lord. He's exactly where he's supposed to be in that Roman jail, in the darkness, attached to the Roman guard. And God, he knew, and he shared in the, uh, the first part of the, uh, the book, uh, the letter here, he says, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Because God is in control over my life, and he puts me exactly where I'm supposed to be, exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. He has a calling on my life, and he sat there, and we saw even in the other letters where he is sharing the gospel with all these soldiers, and people are getting saved all around that place. 
God used that time in the prison to write this letter that speaks to you and I. So God has never made a mistake. Sending you to the North Country was not a mistake. Still living in the North Country is not a mistake. It's only a mistake because you don't want to do what God is guiding you to do. That's the struggle you deal with. But once you come and have contentment of wherever God has you, doing where he's going to send you or do what he's going to have you do, and you have contentment with that, peace will come from God. But when you struggle and you go against where God wants you to do, that's what you deal with. That's your problem. But God says he can help you with that. So just give it to him. He'll help you through it. He has a way to get his way. And, the, and if you never wrestled before, um, I assure you, you will lose the wrestling match with God. It's only a matter of time. He will, he will pin you, if need be. Out of love, of course. So as we see this, not only is it therefore, but see the second word, beseech you to walk. The word walk is a key word here. It means behave. I beseech you. I beg you. I plead with you. Please behave the following way as a child of God. Have you ever as a parent begged, beseeched? You never use the word beseech. Mary, beseech, I beseech you, please just do what mom says to. No. You say, mom is begging you, please do the following. You know. Paul's saying the same thing here. I beg you to behave, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. God put a calling on your life. When you got saved, he put a calling on your life. As a child of God, to do what he wants you to do for his kingdom, for his purpose. And he says, just now behave, just walk like a child of God. Don't don't walk like the world. We talked and I already said how God brought you out of the world. Don't live like the world. Live like you're a child of God. Behave like you're a child of God. There should be no question in anyone's life that if you're walking or behaving as a child of God, as a calling of your life, you, everyone will know that you're a child of God based on your, what comes out of your mouth and where you go and what you do and what you don't do. You're not going to look like the world. You're not going to sound like the world. You're not going to smell like the world. You're going to smell like a child of God. And so Paul is saying, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. And how do you do that? He doesn't just leave you there, but how does he do that? He says right here in verse 2, with all loneliness and gentleness. Do you know those two terms are the only two characteristics that Jesus actually tells us in the scripture? To only Those only two characteristics of his character. He references that, of that he is lonely. Lowly and meek, right? That's gentleness. Only two. So I take note of that. When Jesus says, I am lonely in heart, and I am meek, or I am gentle, what should come out of a child's life? You and I, our life, what should it reflect? A humbled life. A loneliness, a loneliness, a humbled life. There's no pride in a child of God. Pride is one of the first things that will be taken out. Because as a, a non-believer, pride will dominate you. But once you're a tr- true child of God, walking in obedience with it, you will know that the pride should, it cannot be there. 
Because it's a character of loneliness or humbleness that should exude from your life. A humbled spirit, a humbled walk, behavior. That should dominate our lives, just like our Savior. So it's really important that as we look at these here, these verses, that it's important to understand that he has a calling. What is that calling? That calling is to be saints. That calling is to be a, the children of God through faith. It, it's a, the calling of to be heirs of, 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 of salvation. That is our calling. And to be able to do that is... We see here that we must have this, this grace of God to come upon our lives to be able to do that. And we see here in these, these first few, three verses or so, how he calls about that grace of unity that must come about. The first one is that loneliness. It means knowing ourselves. It means knowing ourselves and accepting ourselves and being ourselves to the glory of God. It means to, that God does not, does not condemn you when you accept yourself and your gifts that he has given you. We see in Romans 12, 3. But to understand that he, does, he doesn't want us to think more highly of ourselves, we see in the scripture. But he also says he doesn't want you to think less of yourselves than what he, God has done in your life. And having that balance of understanding of humility, but at the same time know that God has raised you up to be a precious gem, a precious, a precious element of, of God himself. And you see as people work through this, their, their lives in, as a Christian, some sit there and think I, so pridefully that they think they're just arrived as a Christian. And they, they, they look down upon people. And then there's the other Christian who's down on the other side who says, oh, love me, I need to suffer for Christ. And they're just like down and out and they're just depressed. No, no, we have to understand how God sees us and we have to align ourselves up with the characteristics as God works in our lives, these things in our lives, and they match up to the fruit of the Spirit, as we will say. It will bear fruit that God is doing in your life. It will bear that fruit if you continue to seek after him, continue to draw close to him, continue to know him, and, and, and that relationship continues to grow. You will see the fruit bear from your life. And one of those is humbleness or loneliness. The second one we see is this gentleness or meekness. It doesn't mean weakness. It means this quiet strength. We were on our trip last week to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary. We went down to the Lake, um, Lake, Lake George area. And down there in the Saratoga area, there's a lot of, they have horse races and kinds of stuff like that. But you go into all these shops and there's all these beautiful pictures of horses. I mean, they're just beautiful. I mean, just, if you've ever been around a horse or rode a horse, you just see how magnificent this creature that God created. But it's a perfect example of something that God created that has such strength. Such power, but can be in such self-control, right? Be in control. You can you just move it with a, just a simple little tug a bit, and it just moves to left, to the right, backs up. It's amazing what a, a powerful power can be just restrained. But God is, 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 is you, I want this gentleness to come from your life that it doesn't matter if someone is screaming in your, your face and threatening you a lawsuit and threatening you and your life potentially, and you can see them coming unglued, ready to come after you because you've disturbed their peace today. 
that God can give you a sense of gentleness and to be able to, to work through and to talk them down and to help them to understand and try to work with that person. A meekness, because you, you need to have that control. Think of Moses was a weak, was, was he a meek, weak man? And we see in Numbers 12, 3, no, he had tremendous power. Even with some of his ability, you know, issues with speaking and other things. Even Jesus Christ said he was meek and lonely in heart in Matthew eleven twenty nine. But he drove the money changers from the temple. I love Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. That verse that says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lonely in heart and you will find rest for your soul. We're to find rest in him. In the Greek language, this word, it's a soothing medicine that is given. It's a colt that has been broken. A, a wind that is just a soft and gentle wind. But at the same time, that wind can turn very powerful. That horse can turn very powerful. The medicine can be very powerful. But we see that he says, not only do you have to be that humbleness, that loneliness, that gentleness, but look at this. He says, that's joined together, gentleness is joined with the long-suffering. It literally means to be long-tempered. So when that person's in your face and stuff, you're, you're staying gentle, you're staying very humble, but at the same time, you're long-suffering because you're dealing with someone who's just nonstop in your face or something that's being threatening you, and you're just long-suffering because God is going to develop that in you to be able to stay patient on this and dealing with that type of person. This long-tempered, that, that ability to endure very discomforted moments without fighting back. That's long-suffering. If you notice, the first two that he's describing is a relationship between, really, of, of, of you and him. It's, a, it's an inner, inner, inner man kind of characteristic, right? You're humble. You're lonely. You're gentle. That meekness. That's, that's what's happening inside you. But look at long-suffering. That's where it takes that and moves it to your relationship with someone else. You're not long-suffering with yourself. You're long-suffering working and in, in dealing with other people. See, this is not about, oh, I guess I can tolerate them if I show up at church. I can tolerate them. I'll go one way, they go the other way. I'm long-suffering. No, that's not what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Long-suffering means you're engaged with all people regardless of where they are in their life and their walk with Christ. That means someone who comes into church, he's saying, not only are you going to stay to keep this unity, to be able to walk in unity within the church, not only do you need to stay humble to keep that unity, not only do you have to stay gentle to keep that unity within the church, but you have to have long-suffering with all people regardless you have to be long-bearing. You have to be able to, to sit there and listen and to take whatever is going to come your way. And you don't fight back. You don't react to it. You just sit there and say, God, how can I love this person who's being very unloving to me? 
Oh, God is working in all of our lives, I assure you. And yet so many times, oh, I'm so glad that person is no longer there. Trust me, it's only a matter of time. God is going to bring the next person in. May have a different name, may look different, but it's going to be the same personality that's just going to put you right there on that edge again to do a work in your life called long-suffering. You don't avoid what God is doing. What you do is you embrace and say, God, how can I love that person? Show me. How can I have long suffering? How can I not react? I, and you see that the next one is not only do I want to have a long suffering, but this will lead to this, this thing called bearing with or forbearance. A grace that cannot be experienced apart from love. So you can see the next one here of the seven of these graces that God gives us. The grace of humility, that long loneliness, the, the grace of gentleness, the grace of long-suffering, the grace of uh, forbearance, that, the, but the grace of love, because love suffers long and is kind. He's describing the fruit of the Spirit that will be bare from your, your life as you spend more time with Christ. You become who you associate with. Did you know that? I can hang with you, and I can kind of sense who you've been hanging with and what you watch and what you spend time pondering. I can just see it because it, you become who you associate with. But I can also know when you've been spending time in the Word of God and spend time in prayer and in fellowship, I can see that. You can see that. You don't have to say anything. You can see it because, it, because you see these characteristics, these graces that will become very fruitful in their life. They can be low-hanging fruit. You can see it. Oh, wow, he's so gentle. Oh, he's so humble. He's, he, he's, so, he's so loving. He's so long-suffering in that moment, in that time. Oh, he's bearing, the, he's bearing my deal. You know, I'm, I'm really messed up today. I'm really tired. But he seems to be bearing with me here and, and still loving me and still wanting to be with me. This is amazing. So you'll see those things in people's lives especially between couples. But Paul is here talking about within the church body. For us to dwell in unity, to walk in unity, to behave in unity in the church, we must individually, we must allow us to be able to have God do a work in us so that we stay that humble and stay gentle and long-suffering uh, long and, and bearing with one another in love because that is what God's called us to do as children of God. There's nothing more beautiful than in a family to see two, two your, your children loving and playing nicely together. You don't think it will ever happen. You're like, what happened? You, you guys were having a great time. You were having cookies and, 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 I, and milk. And then I, I walk out, I come back in, and you're throwing cookies at each other and throwing milk. What happened? They're still maturing. They're still growing up. They still have a work to be done in their lives as children. But Paul here is describing some of the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5. We see that the unity of the Spirit here is to, has to take place here. And we also see the results of, a, of, of what happens when this happens, the walking of the, in the Spirit that we'll see in chapter 5. But here he goes on to the next one in regards to... Uh, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We see two more here, the endeavoring, the, the, the commitment, that the, the, the I'm literally, I'm going, to be, I'm going to 
keep going regardless of how I feel. I'm going to keep showing up regardless of how I feel, and I'm going to continue to do what God has called me to do and do what is right. Endeavoring, because I want to endeavor. I want to work hard at this. I want to commit to this, because I want to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace within the church. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to work hard. Can you imagine a newly wedded couple? To be happy in marriage, you've got to work at it. To keep that unity within the marriage, it takes work, my people. You don't just sit there and get married and say, oh, then we just let it go. And we'll just, we'll work, we'll work it through. Somehow we'll make it. No, you must work at it. You must be in deep prayer about your marriage. You must be in deep prayer about how to raise your children. You must be in unity in the decisions you make as you go through life so that you know that both of you, God, is speaking to your hearts so you're in peace and unity about where he's going to take you and do in all aspects of your marriage. But as soon as one fights against the other and wants their selfish way and they don't want to be gentle with one another, they don't want to stay humble with one another, they don't want a long bearing of what your spouse is doing or not, these things, this causes disunity. Not only in a marriage, but also disunity within the church. Why do you think splits in churches happen? Because someone's gone rogue and they pull off people and they have these little groups here and little groups here and they have their little secret meetings here and all these things. And it causes disunity. It causes division. And God says, no, that should not. You must stay very focused and endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and that bond together to one another. Because when things go extremely well, and there's love and there's peace and there's just joy among the fellowship and it's going well, I guarantee you Satan will move in quickly. That's how Satan works. Satan will move in and try to wreck the spiritual unity of the home. He will come in. He'll try to wreck the spirit of unity within a church service. He will come in and try to disrupt the church as well. But you and I are individually, we cannot allow Satan to have a play in our life to cause disunity. We must be endeavored to stay focused on the unity of the spirit within the body of Christ. So that Satan cannot get a, a, a foothold in that. And when that happens, we see Paul talks about that final grace of peace, that bond of peace. We'll have such peace when we gather together. Go back in today and read James chapter 3. Verse 13 through uh, chapter 4 through 10. It is the most vivid example of war and peace in the New Testament. It talks about the, that note that the reason why, for the, the, what happens, why war happens within the family or within the church is because war is like, an, is the outside. It's this, 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 this the, the, the reason why war takes place uh, in, in, these, in these environments, why it, it, it is, is uh, you can see the war taking place between people, it all starts with inside the individuals involved. Outwardly, you can see it, but it starts inwardly first. If a believer cannot get along with God, he cannot get along with other believers, and that's period. So if you have a challenge with working with other believers, you need to check your heart because you're not right with God. And we must do that constantly. 
Because we want to keep an endeavor in the unity of the peace and the bond of peace within the, in the church, church body. If not, then you will have problems. Now he continues here in verses 4 through 6 here. Not only we talked about the, 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 um, the grace of the unity, but now we're going to talk about the foundation of this unity. What is it based upon? Just showing up and smiling and saying, hi, good morning, and God bless you. And No, no. What's the foundation that keeps this unity of believers? I mean, we're so diverse in every aspect. How do we come together? Why would we come together and be in a bond of peace and love for one another with such diversity? Paul gives it to us. The Holy Spirit gives us to us right here. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope for your, of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That is our foundation of our unity with one another. That's our foundation. Those are the, 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 the Christian foundational principles you must understand. That's what keeps us in unity. The challenge is, as many people attempt to try to, to unite in diversity in a way that is not what meant for God to do. All roads lead to heaven. Your God, my God, any God, my spirit, your spirit, my feeling, your feeling. We all are talking about the same God. No, we're not. We're not going to have unity on that. We have to be in agreement. What, who is your Lord, right? What is the body? Of course, it's the church body. The body is the body of Christ, in which each believer is a member and placed there at the conversion by the Spirit of God. And you see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. No, no, actually, I'll write to the very end of, the, uh, of that chapter. The body of Christ. A believer. The one body is the model for many local bodies. We have all, we're a local body, but we're part of the bigger body across the world. The fact that a person is a member of one body does not excuse him or her from belonging to a local body. That's the, lo that's the latest trend. I don't need to belong to a local body. I don't need to show up at church. I get to pick and choose my teachings where I, I, I'm part of the big body. I don't need to go to church. It's not what God has. And we'll continue in here in these verses and you'll see why that is true. So not only do we believe in one body, the body of Christ, that we're members of the, the body of Christ, but we're one spirit. The same Holy Spirit indwells in each believer so that we belong to each other in the Lord. There's a, over a dozen of references of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit lives in you, lives in me, that works together to keep us in, in unity. And without the Holy Spirit, without being indwelling of the Holy Spirit, then you're not a believer. And 
And if you pretend to be a believer and you're not born again, then you are not of the same spirit. And because that we're in one body, because there's one spirit, then there's one hope of our calling. This refers to the returning of the Lord to take his church to heaven. The Holy Spirit within is, is the assurance of his great promise. And we learn that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. We have one hope. The hope that God is coming back and taking us home to be in his eternal presence, to be and to serve and to worship him for eternity. Do you know how many people today who call themselves Christians do not believe that? And they wonder why there's disunity within the church body. They don't believe in one body, the body of Christ. They believe in their denomination. There are people who do not believe the Holy Spirit at all. That the person of the Godhead is still working in the lives and has sealed you for eternity. They don't believe that. That's why there is disunity. Do you know why the enemy loves to see disunity within the body of Christ? You see wonderful things that God is doing in all parts and in, in, in tragedy. I guarantee you it will come out in the news with the, with, the, with the hurricane, right? You'll see God using the people to go down and to be part of and helping all people there. And all of a sudden they'll see a, some kind of disunity within the church. And that will be the only thing that will be played on the evening news. Because the enemy doesn't want unity within the church. That's why they're always pinning each other against each other, trying to find division. But we're one body, one spirit, and we have the one hope that God is coming back and to take us home, to be with him. Paul is very clear in his suggestion here that the believer who realizes the existence of the one body, who walks in the one spirit, who, who looks for the Lord's return is going to be a peacemaker within the body of Christ and not a troublemaker. You'll be a peacemaker. There'll be a bond of peace because you are part, you're, you're doing your part within the body. And you're committed in the enduring of, with your relationship with Christ and with one another as, as your brothers and sisters. You're committed to keep that bond of peace. And there's one faith. There is one settled body of truth deposited by Christ in his church, and this is the faith. Jude calls it, in Jude 3, the faith which once was once delivered to the saints. See, the early Christians recognized the body of basic doctrine that they were taught and they guarded and committed to others. We see that in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Christians may differ in some matters of interpretation. Always. And in, there's going to be differences in understanding of the church practice. But all true Christians agree on the faith. That's the key. To depart from the faith is to bring about disunity within the body of Christ. And that's what happens in many churches today. 
People always want to add something to the faith. You must keep this ritual. You must dress this way. You must do this or that. Or you are not, you can't be a Christian. You can't come to this church if you're not wearing the big hat with the flower. <laughs> Gathering together doesn't matter how you dress. It matters who you put your faith who, put, who, who do you put your trust in for your life? And it's usually, you see it reflected by what? Your behavior. I put my trust in my job. I put my trust in my looks, my abilities, my physical abilities. I put my trust in my relationship with this person because this person owns this. I put my trust in my family name. I put my trust in my nationality or the color of my skin. I put my trust, name it. You are not talking about the same faith that I'm talking about here. The faith is in Jesus Christ and him alone that I put my life and trust in. Not the patch that I wear and not the title that I have nor does I base it upon the school I went to and the degree I got. My faith in how I live on this earth as a child of God is based upon my relationship with Jesus Christ alone. And then there's one baptism. The one body, the one baptism... And we're talking about being born again. The baptism of salvation. There's the baptism of salvation. And then there's the water baptism. But I believe he's referring to here as, as we see in the, the one body, the one spirit, the one hope, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism. That is the key. We are never commanded to be baptized with the Spirit, for we have already been baptized by the Spirit at conversion. And the Holy Spirit comes in and seals us for eternity. That's what keeps us bonded as a church, walking in unity. But what happens is if you were talking about the water baptism... It doesn't matter how you were baptized, does it? It doesn't matter if you were sprinkled or fully dunked or anything. We believe it's fully dunked, it's fully immersion, and I can show you the scripture there. But you think we should have disunity over the baptism? Do you know there's some churches that said, where did you get baptized? Oh, I got baptized by a brother uh, in some really swampy land in the backs when we were hunting. You mean you didn't get baptized in the following church? We don't accept your baptism. That is disunity. That's disunity. That's not unity. The unity is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. At salvation, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism that keeps us in unity. But so many times... We get wrapped up into the different baptisms and all these other things that happen within a church. And I, I can't go to that church. They don't, they don't, they don't, they fully emerge. I, I don't believe that. Well, that shouldn't cause disunity. Well, they sprinkle. 
They don't fully that shouldn't cause you disunity. I, they, they just said in Jesus' name. They didn't say in, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit's name. See, these are the crazy things that causes disunity, and Satan loves it. But what the scripture says, we are one baptism because of the Spirit of God coming into you at the point when you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and you were saved. And there's one God. The Father. Paul likes to emphasize God the Father, doesn't he? He did it in Ephesians 1.3. He emphasized that in Ephesians 7, 1.17, 2.18, 3.14, 5.20. He'll even reference it. But the marvelous oneness of believers in the family of God is evident here, for God is over all, working through all, in all. He is everywhere. And the loving father. It's a good, good father. And who will never change. We are the children in the same family, the same loving family, the same serving the same loving father. So we ought to be able to walk together in unity, don't you think? Yes, yes, not a thing. Yes, we should. We must. We must endeavor to do that. Just as an earthly family, the various family members have to give and to take in order to keep the loving unity in the home. So must God's family. We must do the same. Remember the, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer does not say, our Father, or no, he doesn't say my Father, it says our Father. It's a unity. We are going to the same Father to receive the same direction of what God wants us to do, and we must recognize that. And Paul is quite concerned here not to break up this unity of the Spirit by agreeing with false doctrine. Go back and read Romans 16. Paul's very concerned because so many times people will unite and agree with things, but they're actually agreeing on false doctrine and think they're right versus going back and really truly understanding the Word of God and looking at the Word of God and realize you're betting your... That's why cults come about. So you must understand the doctrine, the first three chapters that Paul was talking, so that you're united in oneness and unity and walking unity in the truth, not in the false doctrine. And the local church cannot believe in peace at any price. For God's wisdom is pure than peaceable, James 3.17. Some people say, oh, we'll keep the peace. We'll just allow those sins to continue in the camp. No, they cannot. Purity of doctrine of itself does not produce the spiritual unity. We see that all the time. There's a lot of educated derelicts out there. A lot of people who are Pharisees of Pharisees. And they know the knowledge, but it does not apply 
It's all doctrine and no application. So that's not, pure doctrine will not bring unity, for there are churches there that have sound in faith. I mean, they're just sound with their doctrine. I mean, I've met some churches, I've met some good, I mean, they can quote the scriptures, they know it inside and out, but there is unsound when it comes to love. They're some of the most unloving, because all they are is knowledge of the doctrine, but no application in their own life. And allowing the spirit of God, the fruit of the spirit of love to be bearing their life. It's all knowledge. And this is why Paul joins the two. And, it was, and we see here in verse 15, in, or when we get to 15, about truth and love. Now verses 7 through 11, we see the next one. The diversity of the, of, for unity or the diversity of the church. And why, yes, we have a common foundation that brings unity. But then in that common foundation of unity, there is diversity within the people. And he sees this and it's very beautiful and clear. He says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is, one of, is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some, to, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So when we see here, Paul now moves into what all Christians have in common and to how Christians differ from each other. And he describes not an entirety of all the spiritual gifts, but he emphasizes this ministerial gifts here in this section here. And he talks about the variety and how he uses this to bring unity within the church and unity of the spirit. So God has given each believer at least one spiritual gift when you got saved. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And when you got saved, he's given you that gift or gifts for the purpose of to bring unity within the church body. He says this gift is to be used for the unifying and the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. The gift or gifts he's given you is not for you. I know it. How many times have you gone shop, gift shopping and you go and say, oh, I love that. Oh, I, I, let's try that on. Oh, I think I look good in this. I think I'm going to keep that gift. We'll get, them, we'll get, we'll get something else for someone else. Because you can't get buy two of them for the person. See, no, no, this gift was given to you by God for the purpose of giving it away to someone else in the body of Christ. That's how it works. So many people say, oh, God, I want to have this spiritual gift because I want to be able to write a book about something. I want to be able to go on the circuit and be the highest paid speaker. Or I want to... No, this is not about personal gain here. The gift is for the body of Christ and not for your personal gain. But we must make a distinction between spiritual gifts and natural abilities. When you were born into this world, God gave you natural abilities. Some have given such an ability, and I wish, oh, I wish I could, uh, the ability to just mechanically fix things. Oh, I wish I could do that. I couldn't realize I can't do construction either. 
I have to do it, but I still realize I'm not gifted naturally to do construction. But God has given people to have the ability to do those things. It comes very natural for them. I would love to be able to play instruments and, and all those things with music. I would not given that natural ability. Some have given that a natural ability, and it always amazes me. I'm like, wow, this is just awesome. I try not to covet. I really don't. I try not. But we're talking about spiritual gifts, things that God gives someone to, for the edification within the body, to be able to work within the body, to be able to help the body. These are tools that God uses using you in the body of Christ to help build up the body of Christ. And if they're not used in love, if you use these spiritual gifts that God gives you, if it's not used in love, they become a weapon. They become a weapon that can be very destructive within the body. That happened in the Corinthian church. Remember when we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 12, or chapters 12 through 14. See, because Christians are not to live in isolation. For after all, they are members of the same body. So this philosophy and this train of thought of people saying, I'm just going to isolate myself and I'm not going to come to church. I'm not going to be part of a local church. I'm going to do my own thing. You're really not going, you're really going against the scripture. God has called you and I, when you are truly born again, you've been given gift or gifts for the purpose of for others. And if you do not plug into a fellowship, you do not participate and engage within the fellowship, you are not being used how God's called you to be used in that body. The problem challenge, the challenge comes is when we get selfish and we want to do and, and you know you've been gifted and you want to do these things and you want to do it the way you want to do it, how you want to do it, when you want to do it, and you don't want to be at all guided by anyone else in regards to that within the body. Well, that can become very disunity. That can become chaos when there's no order. And so we have people over time coming to the church and say, God has gifted me this way, and this is what I'm going to do within this body, and this is how I'm going to do it, and this is how I'm going to And I say, no, you can't do that. You have to be sitting for 60, 90 days. Let us get to know you, and let's see how you come alongside someone. You don't just walk right in and say, I'm going to take over the children's ministry because I am been given the, you know, to teach the word of God to children and think you're just going to take over. That just doesn't happen. It's just disunity. That's like an uncle coming in and saying, hey, I'm an uncle. I'm part of the family, and I have an uncle. I've got experience. I'm coming in your house. I'm taking over residence in your house, and I'm going to rule your house or whatever I want to do in your house. I've seen that happen in real life where uncles take over in the house. And they say, look at the disunity that happened. He's saying there's diversity in the, in the body. God has given you gifts and abilities. Now come into, and I'm, he's going to guide you into the body. Just be patient and watch how God is going to use that for his purpose. In the local body and the bigger part of the body, he will use those gifts in his way, in his timing, and by his guidance. 
But Paul here t- teaches the fact Christ is the giver of these gifts. He himself, verse 11, gave some to be apostles. Apostle is one who is sent with a commission. Jesus had many disciples, but he selected 12 apostles. A, a, a disciple is a follower. You and I are a follower of Christ or a learner of Christ. But an apostle is a divinely appointed ministry, an, an office that God designed for 12 apostles. And that's it. The apostles were to be give. They were had to be a witness of his resurrection. We see that in Acts one, and they had to see the risen Christ personally in First Corinthians chapter nine. And there are no apostles today in the strictest New Testament sense, because these men, as an apostle, the definition of the apostle is helped lay the foundation of the church. The foundation was laid by the apostles and the prophets. We saw that in Ephesians 2.20. And the foundation of the church has already been laid. That is why apostles and prophets are not for today. So I don't think anyone here is walking around saying I'm an apostle John and I'm a, a prophet Mary or any of those kinds of things because you would be not accurate according to the scriptures and I'd love to speak with you. But in the broader sense, because I know what you're thinking, <laughs> at least what the Lord said, you better address this, Corey, because I know someone's going to be thinking this. Okay, so the broader sense, all Christians have an apostolic ministry. In John chapter 20, verse 21, I know it, it says, as my Father has sent me, even so I send you. We all have that ministry to be sent out by God to be used by God. But apostleship, that is a 12-man position. Prophets. Many times when you hear, oh, I'm, are you a you, 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 Someone will say something and go, oh, you must be a prophet. Because somehow they, you, you said something to them and it came true and it's like, a, it's this, 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 this the prediction of future events. Oh, you must be a prophet. And we jokingly use that freely. But, in the, in the strictest of New Testament sense, a prophet is one who proclaimed the word of God. That's what they did. Remember, they didn't have the written word. We only had the written word over just over 400 years. So what did they do? God used prophets. Gave, God gave them the word of God, the truths of God, that doctrine of God. And they went out and they spoke. People listened and received. That's how God used it. Then God used this methodology, but he still, uh, what we find here in the truest sense here, that the New Testament believers at churches at the time did not possess these Bibles. Nor was the New Testament written and completed by that point in time. But now... The local assembles discovers how to, to be able to discover God's will back then was through these prophets. Today, how do we discover God's will? By through the word of God. That's how we receive what God's will is for us. That means we must read the word of God. We must study the word of God. We must meditate on the word of God day and night. And then God, through that, reveals his will for you and I. 
not running down and finding some you know, person who has the gift of prophecy. And let that person tell you what they do. And trust me, there'll be people out there, you pay me $10, I'll tell you. I think the going right now is $1,000 to have a prophet show up. A self-proclaimed prophet. Pay the $1,000, I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Not good. But the purpose of prophecy is what? Edification, encouragement, consolation. We see that in 1 Corinthians 14. But Christians today do not get their spiritual knowledge immediately from the Holy Spirit, but immediately through the Spirit teaching of the Word. And so the apostles and the prophets had a foundational ministry. It was an office specifically in the early church, and they are not needed today because we have the word of God. Then there's the evangelists. We see bearings of the good news. These men traveled from place to place preaching the gospel to win the lost. All ministers should be doing the work of, the, uh, of an evangelist. We all should be out there sharing the good news, sharing the gospel. We are to do that. But there is a gift that God gives uh, some of, as an evangelist. They just can walk in. They, just, they can say five or six words and say, you need to get saved. You're not saved. You need to get saved. And they just people just flood. They just... just they hear God's voice. They just know that they're speaking to them. And they get up and they just move. Because it's a gift of God. The Spirit moves through them and touches the hearts of people like no other. But the Spirit of God also speaks to you and I. If we have not been given that gift of evangelist. And we just share the truth. We share the gospel. Share our testimony. And it's amazing how the Holy Spirit will work through, in and through you, to touch the lives of other people. And then we see pastors and teachers. And if you've noticed, in front of each of these ministerial positions, it was some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors, but there's no some in front of the teachers. And if you look at the Greek language, pastors and teachers, they're one that goes together pastor is of someone who ministers to the sheep. They, they, they love the sheep. They minister to the sheep. They care for the sheep. And they also feed the sheep. They're teaching the word of God. They teach the word of God. And it's the feeding of the sheep. That is what they're called to do. And because of this, the pastor means, of course, the shepherd. The teacher is certainly the teaching of the word and the feeding the flock. And we also see in the scriptures the word elder. Elder and pastor is the same, same, same meaning. But we, I love the verse in Jeremiah. Even in the back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 3.15, it says, And I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. That is what it means to be a pastor. God has put a calling on my life to come and to care for you as sheep, to love you, to have a heart for you, and to do what it takes to help you in your walk with Christ. And to be part of this body and to teach you and to encourage you through the word of God to understand the simplicity and the understanding of application of the word of God into your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Because I don't do the work. The Holy Spirit does the work through me. It's a spiritual gift. It's not something that I, ooh, you knew me back years ago. You know I would not want to be up here and let alone even be doing this. But when God gives you a gift, you cannot sit down and not do what God has called you to do. Oh, you can try it for a couple of weeks. Some have run away for a couple of months and said, I'm done with the ministry. But you will not have the peace and they will not have the joy because you're not doing what God's called you to do. And you do it with no personal gain, but just to want out of love for your Christ. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Because the word of God is food and it nourishes the sheep. The word of God is the staff of the shepherd that guides and disciplines the sheep. The word of God is the local church's protection and provision. And no amount of entertainment in the church, no amount of good good. Beautifully orchestrated fellowship in the church. No other religious substitutes and rituals within the church is going to provide the protection and the provision and the feeding of the, of the sheep of that flock. Entertainment within a church is deflecting and moving away from the purpose of what God has called that pastor to do. Creating some Social gathering and social, social clubs within the church is taking away from what God has called that pastor to do. Programs that are filling the churches today, programs that just man-made, thought-up ways are not doing what God's called them to do. They're moved away from the word of God and they're teaching someone some author's book. Show up on Sunday and let me tell you the latest book I read. It's really great. It's this author. He's out of here, such and such. And let me tell you and let's highlight. And oh, by the way, in the back corner, it's on sale today, 50% off. But please buy your book before you show up so you can follow along with me. That's happening in the church's day. It's insanity to me. Because they're not teaching and feeding the sheep, the whole counsel of God. They're just picking and choosing their favorite topics. That's why we teach from book, from cover to cover. We'll get there. You've been here long enough. We'll get there. We'll have all 66 books covered. It may be another five years, but we're going to get through it all, I assure you. And lastly, whoo, verses 12 through 16. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That is why those, those uh, gifts were given to, certain, to men to be able to teach the word of God. It is not, it is just as simple, as clear as can be for three reasons. Equipping of the saints. For you to be equipped to go out into this world to live the Christian life. To to, for the work of the ministry, to share the gospel, to, to, to encourage those in the faith, to lead those who are lost, to, be, to, to know who Jesus Christ is, 
to do with the calling that God's called you to do and for the edifying of the body of Christ. To encourage within the body of Christ. That is what God's given us to do. That is what we are to do. That is the, that is the why. And how long do you do this, right? Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to a mature man, to a mature woman, to be mature, to the measure. And what's that maturity? How do you know if you've reached that maturity? It says right here, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To you become such Christ-likeness that the fruit of the Spirit, the, who you are, it permeates the characters of Jesus Christ. What, what, what am I to become? How do you raise my little boy or my little girl? How are they supposed to act and how are they supposed to behave? They are to look and act and behave like Christ. Not the movie star. Not the athletic hero. Not the high-tech genius. But to be Christ-like. That's the evidence of someone who is dwelling and seeking after Christ. The Christ-likeness will be bearing from their life, that Paul says here. There'll be this unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, into a perfect man, this, this mature Christian, Christ-like man, Christ-like woman, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. You're not going to be tricked. They're going to have such stability. Not only will you have Christ-likeness, but there'll be such stability. You won't be like a child going, ooh, squirrel. Oh, Mufasa. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no emotional ups and highs and lows and all kinds of things. You'll be such so steady in your stability of your walk with Christ. No one will shake you. War won't shake you. The latest gimmick that is Put out on some top-selling Christian book won't shake you from the word of truth. Someone who comes into the fellowship and slowly starts permeating and starts talking about things that go against the word of God, you immediately alert to it and go, wait a minute. Show me the scripture. I need to go back and research it. That doesn't line up with what the scripture says. You don't sit back and sit there and go, mm, I'm not sure what he's saying. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to, mm. no, you just, God, give me a way to lovingly ask some questions to that person. Show me the scripture. Can you show me the scripture, please? Why don't you and Mike, let's go see the pastor. I would love for you to explain what you just did with the pastor. <laughs> I want you to explain it because I'm not getting it. You, you, you don't allow those things because you're so stable. You're not going to be tricked here in the scripture, Paul says. You're not going to be trickery of men. You're not, there's in that cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Oh, I've seen it in the years in the ministry. Woo, have I seen it. It causes disunity within the body of Christ and it needs to be cut out. There's no repentance, there's no change. It's got to be cut. Because what's going to happen is that is what's going to cause disunity within. There no, will not be a walking. Be, the behavior within the church, it will not be of unity. 
And then he says that we should no longer be children. We should be mature. Put away childish things. We need to be mature here. But in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up. You'll grow up in all things into him, Christ, who is the head. From whom the whole body, the whole body benefits. Why does it benefit? Because it's joined and knitted together. We're, if you ever crocheted, if you ever knitted, this is not just one piece of uh, yarn, another piece of yarn, another piece of yarn, like that kind of set. Of course it won't work. It's knitted together. And when you pull a fray in one thing, it's going to pull on another thing. It's going to cause tearing and, and holes. It's not going to be as warmth and, and protective and comfortable when you have holes in your afghan. But he uses the body. Can you imagine? If this hand, the brain sits there and says, send a signal down here and tell the hand to do the following. So the head sends down through the nerves, goes into the arm, comes to the hand, and tells the hand, you're going to now flip a page. You flip the page. We can continue. Things are good. But what happens if this hand becomes rebellious and doesn't do what the head says to do? What you have is, is kind of, it's going to be a challenge. Because this hand could all of a sudden sit there and go, you know, the hand could do whatever. If it's rebellious, it wants to do whatever they want to do. And it goes based on emotion and goes based on not the truth and not in love, then this hand can do a lot of destruction, a lot of disunity. The head controls the body. Christ controls the body. And so when in the church body, if you go against the word of God, against Christ, then you're causing disunity. That means you become a weapon and a tool that could go against the body. It's called cancer. And when something in the body goes wrong, then all of a sudden there's an attack on that. There's going to be death. It's never good. It's got to be dealt with. But when there's unity, and every part of the body is listening and obeying and doing what the brain is, says it to do, the head tells it to do, then it has perfect functioning within the body. The body functions. It is, as the scriptures say here, it is knitted. It's joined. It's it, the joints. It supplies off the one to the other. That's why when you take and say, I don't want to show up and I don't want to be part of a fellowship, what you're doing is you're taking yourself out of where God is taking you maybe between two people because God wanted to use you to minister to that person. No one else in the body can minister to that person, maybe except for you. And if you take yourself out of it, how the joints, there's a dis, disjointed. That's why we encourage the fellowship. We encourage you to participate. encourage you to stay before and after. Pray with one another. To spend time with one another outside of the church. Make the phone call. Send the texts. Do these things. Because God has put us on your heart to do it. To do it because he wants to use you. We're knitted together. 
The supply, it says the scripture here, the joint supplies according to the effective working by, with, by which every part does its share. You're part of the part. Do your share. Because you're missing out and the body's missing out of what God wants to do through your life. If you don't show up, how you're missing out on the benefits of God using people in your life. So isolation is goes against what God is saying here. Picking and choosing what you're going to do and not do is going against the scriptures today. Trust God and the power of the Holy Spirit to work through you and in you to do the effective work that God has put a calling on your life when you became a believer. I encourage you, I, I beseech you, my brothers and sisters, because the outcome will be growth. You will see in front of your eyes a young man, a young woman growing into maturity. You will see healthy sheep will be God, healthy sheep. You will go out and you will share the gospel and you will help others and lead them to Christ. You will meet that brother and sister who has not been in fellowship, has not been given the word of God. They might be in good fellowship, but not the word of God being taught. And they're dying because they're not been fed. And they're, they're, they need more than just the cotton candy that's being delivered out there today. You can't survive on cotton candy. You must have the depths, the whole counsel of God so that you can grow and mature in your faith so that God can use you in the effective work that he has got calling on your life. And then we'll see growth in the lives of people. And healing will take place in people's lives. Families will be healed. Relationships will be healed because forgiveness will dominate. Love will dominate in their lives. And the whole body benefits because they'll be walking in the unity. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for this place, for your provision for this place. We thank you for allowing us to be able to come and open up your word and the Holy Spirit to be moved in this place today and to speak to our hearts. I pray there's anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you, that today is the day of salvation for them, that they would, they've heard your voice and they want that personal relationship with you. And I pray they will put their faith, their trust, their one faith in you and you alone today. But I also pray for those who their faith might be weak, might be shallow. There's no depth. There's no stability. There's no foundation. I pray for them as well. That today you've taken them deeper and wider. Stabilized them. Understanding how important it is to be Christ-like. To see the cooperation that takes place within the body. The love between and knitted together. And love for with one another. Our love for you and the love for others just because so dominant in our minds, Lord. May we endeavor to do what you call us to do. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that's been hurt within the body of Christ, 
Oh, I pray they hadn't been hurt here, Lord. Regardless if they've been hurt, I pray that they would lay out all at your feet and seek you to allow your peace and joy to fill them and that they would move on, move forward in the body of Christ, not to find ways and, and excuses to avoid the, the assembly of the brothers and sisters that are gathering here in the home, but those excuses would go away. And the rationales will go away. And that they would come and they'd sit at your feet to hear from you and also to be used by you and others in each other's lives to help them grow in their relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen, amen, amen. Please stand. little over. That's a little bit. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. Lots of food. Make sure you stay and have some, eat up some of that food. Don't want to go to waste for sure. Have seconds, thirds, fourths, whatever. Share. Break some muffins together. You need prayer? We're here to pray for you, with you. Please, just ask. Let us know that you have prayer needs. And uh, in your time of fellowship, you know, just whatever you need, just let us know. We wanted to, to minister to you. Come see me. I'll be here, out there. Love you. Have a safe week. May you have a wonderful time in the Word of God as you study the Word of God and you have that quiet time with the Lord and that fellowship with other believers. May God use you in a mighty way. And soon and very soon, Lord's coming back for us. I cannot, oh, I can wait. But I'm waiting with great anticipation, I assure you. Amen? Soon and very soon, we are going to see our King. Soon and very soon, we are going to see our King. Soon and very soon. We are going to see our King. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We're going to see our King. Love you guys dearly.